Hello, welcome to the Daily Disciples Bible Study Podcast. My name is Bobby Brooks, and I will be your host for today's show as we begin a brand new Bible study in the book of Philippians. This book is often known as the Epistle of Joy because of Paul's incredible attitude while he was in prison in Rome. He speaks about rejoicing regardless of his circumstances and sends a great letter to a church that he founded in the European city of Philippi about 11 years earlier. So we begin by acknowledging that the Apostle Paul writes this book, writes this letter. He is imprisoned in Rome. The year is AD 61, between AD 61 and 62. He is under house arrest. He is awaiting trial before Caesar, and he is in a very dire circumstance. But his message to the church at Philippi is one that will bring great encouragement to us as believers, because this message is applicable in our times of feeling that we are imprisoned, in bondage, in dire circumstances. And so this message is designed and meant to encourage us and give us application from the Word of God of how to remain in Christ. And let's jump into this in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy was his kind of his protege. Timothy was someone he had trained up. He was taking Paul's place, going from church to church. And Paul respected Timothy and considers him a fellow bondservant of Jesus Christ. I want to talk a little bit about what a bondservant is and why this term is so significant that Paul uses. In the Greek, the word is D-O-U-L-O-S, Dolos, which means one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master. It's basically a slave. And other translations use the, the word slave or just servant. A bond servant is someone who voluntarily becomes another person's slave. In the Hebrew word ebed, E-B-E-D, it had a similar meaning. The indentured servants that people owned or paid for back in those days had an opportunity to volunteer to stay with their master even after their time was up or the period of slavery was over or whatever their particular agreement was. Now, that was the Old Testament. In the New Testament, a bondservant is a figurative term that Paul is using as a position of his heart, his attitude toward Christ. He is a voluntary slave of Jesus Christ, and so is Timothy. And we're going to see how this is evident in his message. And he calls them saints because they are believers in Christ, and he acknowledges that they have deacons and they have bishops. The church is 11 years old, so they do have a leadership structure and they have people with responsibilities. And then in verses 3 through 6, we start to see him giving thanks for the Philippian Christians. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in prayer, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, of what thing? Being confident that he 
who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we see where Paul gives thanks in just remembering he loves this group. He has great affection for the church at Philippi, for the Philippians. And they, in return, have a great respect and love for Paul. They supported his ministry in love, and they supported his ministry even financially. So that's why he's writing such a wonderful letter to them, telling them that he remembers them with great joy. He prays for them that they would be in the fellowship of Christ. And in confidence, he knows that as long as they remain in fellowship with Christ, that he who has begun a good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So who is he? The Lord. When does the work begin? It begins from the first day. So from the very first day, Paul says, until now, that he who begun a good work will complete it, will be faithful to complete it, some versions say. First day that we come to Christ, that we surrender, that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. If we take this, these verses in context, and if we remember to pray for the fellowship of believers, to pray for the saints of the earth, to pray for those who are preaching the gospel, who are ministering, who are witnessing, that we, and we remain in a position of our hearts of joy, that which is evident of the fruit of the Spirit, that we can be confident the good work is going to be completed. So what Paul is saying is, Stay together, stay in Christ, and the good work will continue to be completed in each of you and in the body. So going on to verses 7 through 8, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have in you, I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. So he is just saying how much he truly loves them. He has great affection for them. He is thinking about them and that they are all partakers in the grace of Christ. And he longs for them. He misses them. He misses going to see them. In verses 9 through 11, he says that he is going to pray for them. And he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now he's getting into a little bit more meat of his message. We could read this and go, oh, love may still abound more and more in knowledge and discernment and just pass it by. But I believe there is a very strong message for us with this prayer. Love in our definition, can be used to describe how we feel about many things, people, situations, events, issues, items, whatever. We can love ice cream. We can love certain types of music, art, whatever. We say, I love blank, 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 and it goes on. Love tends to be from an emotional perspective. We tend to think of love from the heart. That's why hearts and love so often go together. But Paul's message is saying, may your love abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. Now that's, that kind of takes the heart and the feeling out of it. Knowledge and discernment is more of a, a mental 
component. And, and, and really, it's a spiritual gift. It's also a very spiritual component. But if we just take the spirit part away and just deal with our flesh, we tend to think of ourselves between our hearts and our minds and our will and all these components that make us up. But to have knowledge, we typically associate that with our brain, our thoughts, our intellect. Discernment is often used in the spiritual turn, and it is a very spiritual gift. So Paul is really saying love must be in knowledge and wisdom and discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent. In other words, that you can stay on the path, the walk, the mission, the purpose of Christ, not of the world, in the world. But we're not to be of the world. We're not to let our hearts be trapped by things of the world. We're not to fall in love with things that are temptations to our eyes or to our mind or to our senses and oftentimes that's where love is used as a definition as a description as a a tool it can be very much used as a weapon against the good things of Christ to love without Christ opens the door to using our emotion to allowing the enemy to come in and take our emotions and confuse our love and confuse how we use love. And it can be a weapon used to harm and to hurt. There are people who murder others over love. It's not love. Very confusing. The ultimate judge of our emotions and our intellect and our spirit is the Lord. God is going to judge all of us. The Bible tells us that the intentions of the heart are deceitfully wicked. If the intentions of our heart are deceitfully wicked, we cannot trust when we talk about love. If we're not in the context grounded in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And that connection is made when we become saints, when we become believers, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have the ability to pray for wisdom, knowledge, and discernment that our love will abound more and more, that we can approve the things that are excellent, that we will be sincere as we walk out our walk, as we even witness, as we teach, as we minister, as we are the very examples of Christ. We are the little Christ on this earth. We're often judged because we don't appear loving. Sometimes love hurts. Sometimes love is painful. The truth, if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. And you can't have truth without love when it comes to knowing Jesus. If the truth sets us free, love sets us free. So let's go on and uh, continue with the verses because Paul is going to give us a great example of his love for people in Christ, even his enemies. Verses 12 through 14 But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is letting, he's letting this group of people know who love and adore him, who are worried about him, no doubt, that don't don't be concerned that the things that have happened to me have actually been used to further 
the message of the gospel, which is Paul's main purpose. He completely is a bondservant, voluntarily sold out as a slave to Jesus Christ, to the message of the gospel. And he is seeing this being evident to such an extent that he is more bold and those around him are more bold without fear to speak about the power and the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. You know, they, they tried to kill him. They tried to, to, I mean, Paul had been through more tribulations and trials than anybody leading up to this point in time. And he is still with great joy witnessing in boldness because the furtherance of the gospel is all that matters. And he continues this in the next set of verses, verses 15 through 18. Such an example of Paul's maturity as a believer, his wisdom, his knowledge, his discernment, his complete in Christ position, even in prison. He says, some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. So he, he takes it a step further and adds that there are those around him that even though there's boldness of, of furthering the gospel, there are those indeed who preach Christ from envy and strife and selfish ambitions versus those who are from goodwill, from a place in their heart of just being bold to speak about Christ. They may not be the best preachers in terms of an oratory sermon. They may not be the most knowledgeable, but their hearts are in the right place. They're completely doing it out of love, he says, knowing that Paul has been appointed to defend the very gospel that he's imprisoned for component of both his flesh and his spirit are in alignment with Jesus Christ when he can say, but only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. In this I rejoice that Christ is preached. That is all Paul cared about. How many of us today would be able to put our emotions aside, put our differences aside, our opinions, our judgments aside, and just be thankful for everyone who is preaching Jesus Christ. I know that from being in ministry for many years, I've come across people that I didn't necessarily agree with their position, their approach, their message. But I remember sitting on the couch one day watching a person on television, and that little judgment part of me began to rise up and enter my thoughts. And without saying a word, I was judging the person I was watching. And in the midst of my thoughts that were against a person and my judgment thoughts began to take over my mind, I'm not kidding, out of the blue, it was as though another thought is impressed upon me that overrides all my judgment. And it's like this inner voice says, who are you to judge what they are saying? And I just had a moment where I thought, is that you, Lord? Is that, is that my conscience? Is that, well, as you mature as a believer and as you read the word of God, you begin to grow in understanding 
And as you pray for wisdom, knowledge, and discernment, you begin to hear the Spirit and you begin to understand that that's the voice of God, whether it's not necessarily audible, but it's an impression that you know has interrupted your thoughts. And it's in line with what Paul is saying. Because whenever I stepped back and looked at this person on the television, they were preaching Christ. They just weren't doing it the way I thought they should have. And their message wasn't necessarily one that I would have gone behind. But the Lord put me in my place. And mainly he said, I'm not the judge. He's the judge. So I am to love in Christ. I am to do what he has told me to do, not to judge those who might be different. And I am to rejoice in the furtherance of the gospel, however it may be done. So that was a a great moment for me. And it's something I've never forgotten. Now let's go and finish up with the second part of this chapter, verses 19 through 20. He continues by saying, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. This is his acknowledging that he's confident that there's a deliverance coming through the prayer from these saints and that Christ is going to be glorified and magnified through his body, whether he is alive or dead. And these next set of verses bring us to an amazing point that Paul makes. He is not in fear of death. He says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, meaning his body, this will mean fruit from my labor. In other words, if I live on, I will continue to bear fruit. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So Paul is speaking from both sides here. He is talking about if he remains alive, or if he is is murdered by the Romans, which he ends up, we know what ends up happening to Paul. He feels as though he has a choice. And, and I think for all of us, we kind of all have a choice every day to live for Christ or to die, you know. But to Paul's death meant a physical death of being present with the Lord which his heart, you know, his desire would be, I don't want to spend the, no, not any more time in prison. I don't want to be executed by Caesar. I don't want to have to go through anything, any more hardships. But if I remain alive, I will bear more fruit. I can continue to communicate. We can continue to pray that I will be delivered. We can have hope. As long as we are living and breathing, we have hope until the Lord calls us home, until, until something happens that it is our last breath. We have hope. And Paul's choice was to remain in the flesh, to remain as a bondservant for Jesus Christ, to remain the apostle, the missionary, the preacher, the teacher, to remain that bondservant only to preach the gospel and to encourage 
the body of believers. In verse 27, he kind of indicates, if something happens, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's giving them an action. He is giving them an expectation. He's giving them how to live message. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. The word conduct in the Greek literally means to live as a citizen. Paul told the Philippians to be good citizens of the kingdom of God. And he will mention this throughout the book. It's a theme of his to let your conduct be worthy And that he would be, whether he's there or not, that he would be hearing about their conduct. And in other letters, Paul rebuked some of the churches for their conduct. But the Philippian church, he was happy with them. There was a tremendous deep relationship. And he knew that their hearts were with Christ. And he says, I may hear of your affairs. They were still accountable to Paul. That the main goal was to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is the message for all of us today. That is not changed. We are to be together in one spirit, one mind, with the faith to further the gospel. That's what all of us, are. our complete mission on this earth is to do. To be a daily disciple of Christ is to share the message, and train up others to do the same. As we do that, there will be challenges and trials and adversaries. In verse 28, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. So Paul wants the Philippians to be bold as they face adversaries, and we're always going to have People, places, and things that come against us whenever we take a stand for the gospel. And Paul himself knew that better than anyone. But he's saying, I don't want you to be terrified. Now, the ancient Greek language used the word terrified to mean a term that illustrated or denoted the uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. Now, if, if you were living back before the, the invention of the car, the automobile, and it was horses was the main mode of transportation, and horses can be startled, and they're huge animals. They, they're heavy, they're fast, they're, they can be terrifying coming at you. So a, a stampede out of control meant terrified. If we take that into our world today, and we make it a little spiritual, the terrifying comes in our minds more so than it's going to come from a herd of uncontrolled startled horses it's going to be a stampede of uncontrolled thoughts our adversary roams about like a lion seeking whom he may devour our adversary includes the principalities of the spiritual beings that are invisible that are of fallen angels and demons who seek to destroy us. Their their ultimate proof of perdition is our destruction. And the only way they can do that is through a means of getting us fearful, ashamed, guilty, 
hopeless, helpless, whatever the situation may be, to get us to stop being in Christ, to stop furthering the gospel, to stop loving in wisdom, knowledge, and discernment, to stop having conduct worthy of a saint. So Paul is giving them a heads up. Be bold. How are we to stand before our adversaries? Be bold. It's a whole nother teaching from Ephesians 6, but putting on the armor of God is a, a simple way of prayer, of praying as we have adversaries coming against us. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the feet of the good news. We shod our feet. We cover our feet. Why? So we can keep going forward and walking with the gospel. There's so many ways that we take the word and we use it in our minds against terrifying thoughts designed to keep us from living out the good work that was started in us. Having the faith to believe the good work will be completed as long as we're willing to remain in the flesh, even if to die is gain, but to live is Christ. He wraps up verses 29 and 30. Why the Philippians need not to be terrified and why these attacks sometimes are ordained by God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So he ends chapter 1 with a message to prepare, to know that it has been granted on behalf of Christ that you are to believe in him, and yes, you will suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. In other words, there are going to be some of you that are persecuted. Some of you will be imprisoned. Some of you will be murdered. Some of you will lay down your life physically. Some of you will lose things, but these are ordained by God. And we know whenever our trials and tribulations have been ordained by God, because we are doing the work, the good work He has called us to do. He has started in us. Because whenever we are in the world and not of the world, we are swimming upstream. We are going against the grain. We are loving in truth and wisdom, knowledge, and discernment. We are taking all these principles, and we have such great joy and such great peace. And our love is sincere and is in an excellent way with the truth. Well, that doesn't sit well with the ways of the world. The adversaries will attack. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. It happened to most of the disciples before their lives were over. Many, many people of the early church were murdered for the sake of the gospel. There are missionaries today who are in prison in other countries for the sake of the gospel. In America, we have the freedom of religion, but there are certainly days ahead when more of those freedoms we're going to see be taken from us. To say I'm a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whew, there are places that that is not welcome. And it seems like other religions are more celebrated than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The land of the free, the home of the brave, one nation under God is slowly changing. So this message from Paul, this book of Philippians, could be possibly more relevant to us today than any other time in history. What should we be praying for love to abound more and more in 
knowledge and discernment. That whoever dares to open the word and preach Christ, that will rejoice in it and not judge, but will speak the truth in love with the wisdom given to us. If there are people who are false teachers, false prophets, that's a different, different thing than what Paul is mentioning. I'm excited to be teaching this book. This is, we're just getting into it. We're just getting started. And this is going to be a message, like I said, that is applicable to us today as it was to this group of believers in, the, in Philippi in AD 61. I pray that you can read over the chapter and go back and ponder over certain verses, write them down, pray over them. And the next episode is going to be chapter two as we continue in the epistle of joy. I pray for you all to be at peace and to, to find the grace of Jesus Christ every day and the love, joy, and peace to guide you in the way and that your faith will remain strong in these days and times in which we live. God bless and I'll see you soon.